bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for making this a day that we're all able to join together in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for giving us a time to fellowship with you personally, for this is our benefit for being believers, saved by your grace and mercy through your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that those listening to my voice, whether live or even afterwards, that they not only know you, but you know them. And that they are not deceived as lukewarm professors, lest you personally spit them out of your mouth. We pray also, Father, for those in this congregation that truly desire to be here with us this morning, but due to circumstances out of their control, cannot be. Bless them, Father, for their hearts are with you. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is titled The Difficult Passages. And you notice that I have difficult in parentheses for a reason it's because as the spirit's been teaching us difficulty is a relative term and things really are only difficult because man is really good at making it so so this morning is a continuation of thursday's message which was titled the gospel context first we had the gospels plural uh, and now we have the gospel context. There's a lot of folks, I believe, uh, that have the context, the very context of Jesus Christ and what he came to do uh, skewed and have, as a result, carved them up into a million different pieces uh, and lost sight of the person himself. And if you lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ, you lose sight of his gospel. It's that simple. And so the context of the gospel is really critical uh, and it's something that we spent a good amount of time on in that 117-part series, but the Spirit wants us to spend a little more time as we sort of go out. Uh, you remember the emphasis after that series was on the Great Commission, and He wants us to go out with the right context in mind. And when we go back to our Bibles now with those wonderful lessons under our belt, so to speak, that we know how to read our own Bibles even, very, very important. Uh, one of a shepherd's greatest fears is that a person does do that wonderful work reading their own Bible, but they don't have the context right, and so they get lost. Anyways, Thursday's message was a message requiring a fair amount of concentration, as are most messages that seek to demystify and or unravel so-called, quote, difficult passages. And just so you all know, these quote, difficult passages haven't always been difficult for everyone hearing my voice. And that's a good thing for all of you to hear because as we go through these lessons, there may be times when you have to really buckle down. And there may be other times when the word difficult doesn't describe your situation at all. So you just have to sit back and be reassured that or about what you already know to be true. 
And if you're in the second category of people, do not assume a sleeping position. Do not assume a sleeping position. I wonder why, where everybody is this morning. Are they assuming a sleeping position? Where is everyone? Where are their priorities? So don't assume the sleeping position just because you may or may not even realize that uh, these passages are difficult for some. For you are still under the yoke of learning. And if some in your own congregation have had difficulties with certain passages in the past, then just imagine the questions people have outside of this congregation. Just imagine if someone in this congregation, even now, has difficulty, quote-unquote, with certain passages. Just imagine what's going on outside of these four walls. They don't just have difficulties. They're completely deceived. They're completely lost. I'm not saying this is the only church that teaches truth. I hope you understand what I'm saying. There's a lot of people outside of churches like this one that are totally lost and deceived. So all of you, regardless, are meant to be equipped to defend that which you claim to be true. Equipped to defend that which you claim to be true. So says Scripture. I wrote a whole blog titled it MASH and then taught intermittently about this idea that the church is not the end goal. (laughs) This is not the spiritual life, my friends. The Great Commission is not in these four walls. It says go out to the nations. These are not the nations. The nations are out there. The Great Commission includes the rest of the world. This is where you get equipped. This is where you get equipped even to defend that which you claim to be true. This is not the end point, folks. This is the starting point for a lot of Christians, a lot of professing Christians that may not even be saved. This is the end goal. If I could just get myself to church, God will be pleased. Eh, Maybe. But if that's your end goal, he's not going to be pleased for very long. But but wait a minute. You're my slave. I asked you to go out. So regardless of where you stand on the so-called difficult passages, you are meant to be equipped to defend that which you claim to be true. So says Scripture, unless, ironically, (laughs) you're having difficulty with the following. Go to 1 Peter 3.13. 1 Peter 3.13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being, able, always being ready to make a defense 
to everyone. So maybe you are part of that second category. People are, I don't really have much difficult with this stuff. Yeah, but when push comes to shove, are you able to defend your position? Or are you just so self-absorbed that the church is the end goal and you could care less about going out? These are the things the Spirit's sort of stirring up. One of the key reasons the Spirit has us, or even has us taking this time on the so-called you know, difficult passages is for this very reason. Even if you're not currently struggling with some of these passages and or concepts, others around you may be. And eventually it's possible that you might be asked to give a defense for what it is that you believe, as Peter just wrote. Up here on the board. Ready to make a defense. Students eventually become teachers. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, we'll see that in a moment. Students eventually become teachers. Teachers are able to clarify topics of discussion by wiping away irrelevant or false preconceptions, supplanting them with the truth. However, one must be able to first identify false ideas before they are able to dispel them for their students. Let me read that again. Students eventually become teachers. Teachers are able to clarify topics of discussion by wiping away irrelevant or false preconceptions, supplanting them with the truth. One must be able to first identify false ideas before they are able to dispel them for their students. Hold your thumb. Go to Hebrews 5.11. Hebrews 5.11. This is not a novel concept, folks. You come to church to be taught. And then it's your job to go out. It's not my job to go out. I have my own little ministry, of course, to go out. But it's not my job to sit in your position and do all the work for you to go out. Don't say, oh, pastor will take care of it, or Evangelist Grande, he'll take care of it, or all these people that seem to be frequenting these parks and all this kind of, they'll take care of it, but not me. I'm just going to sit here and go to church, and God's pleased with that. No, that's not Scripture at all, my friends. That's not the end of the sentence. Hebrews 5.11, on the topic of becoming teachers, concerning him we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I often think about that phrase, even in this beloved congregation of ours, dull of hearing. I know that's the case with some of you. I know that's the case with some of the people that aren't here this morning because they've become dull of hearing. And the odd thing about the whole situation is that those are the ones that need it the most. Verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be what? Teachers. The writer of Hebrews is not saying that all of you are going to stand behind a pulpit. He's saying, by now you ought to be teachers. You ought to be on parity with a teacher even, being able to teach others. You know, like defend the hope that is in you. Ready to give a defense, that whole thing. Understanding what's going on around us. Understanding the condition in which you are called. Understanding certain types of religions that are in our area that have people completely deceived and understanding why they might be deceived. You know, all that good work, not just living for yourself, not just coming to church and saying, God's pleased. No. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, says the writer, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. The writer of Hebrews is echoing the point on the board, my friends. Again, are you ready to make a defense? Students eventually become teachers. We just read that. Teachers are able to clarify topics of discussion by wiping away relevant or false preconceptions, supplanting them with the truth. One must be able to first identify, though, these false ideas before they are able to dispel them for their students. So we have a sense of responsibility to others in this world. Now, you may not like that idea at all, but that's too bad because that's what Scripture says to us. We ought to have a sense of responsibility. Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to give you grace. You know, minors. I'm going to give you some, some minors. You go invest this into the world. You, you make double or triple these things. But don't bury it in the mason jar in the backyard. That's not my will at all. That's to your own shame. We have a sense of responsibility whether or not we like it or not to this world, especially the lost and confused. The point is that we must be able to identify them in the first place before we are able to help them. Again, look at verse 511. Concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. To discern good and evil. Kind of hard to be a teacher if you can't discern the distinction between good and evil. All right, go back to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Again, the key point, students eventually become teachers, but teachers have to first identify false things before they can actually dispel anything for the sake of their students. Verse 16, and by the way, and keep a good conscience. Here's a great one because you need to think about this as well. Keep a good conscience while you're doing, while you're giving this defense. Here's what I believe. A lot of people give a defense and they don't know what the heck they're talking about. You know why? Because they're not here they're not taking in all the grace that God gives just from this one ministry alone, the one they've been called to. And yes, I'm talking to my own sheep. So their conscience smells. Why? Because they know they haven't been taking in God's grace the way they ought to be. You actually have to, to have a good conscience, get this, you ready? To have a good conscience, you actually have to know what you're talking about. Okay? I'm not going to go to a knitting fair and go, ladies, stand aside. Let me show you how to do this hook, slip, knot, knit. I don't, I'm just, 
Obviously, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about, right? But what if I, my conscience is going to be terrible, right? I'm going to be like, this is, I'm going to get out of here. Eventually, they're going to figure this out. I don't know what I'm talking about. My conscience is terrible because I don't know what I'm talking about. Is that you? How's your conscience when you're so-called defending what you claim to know to be true? How's your conscience sitting? Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. How's your conscience? So this little intro is a gentle reminder to all of you to remember the condition of so-called Christianity today. The condition of so-called Christianity. You notice I don't call us, except in passing, I don't like to call myself even a Christian nowadays. Why? Because the definition has been so soiled and hijacked, I'm afraid other people are going to think I'm like the rest of the morons out there that call them Christians, which arguably many of them are not even saved How could they be if they follow their own doctrines? If they're not getting their doctrines from the world. So this little intro is a gentle reminder to all of you to remember the condition of so-called Christianity today, especially in our local area. Look, Christianity, I don't mind saying this, Christianity is a train wreck. Christianity in this area is a train wreck. Wreck. Because most professing Christians are totally lost. Totally lost. And possibly even in the very worst connotation of that word. Like, lost to the lake of fire lost. But yet, do you know Christ? Absolutely. Do you believe that Christ went to the cross, died, and was... Absolutely. So do the demons. All right, changing gears a little bit. That was just an intro. Happy Sunday morning. Welcome, visitors. <laughs> With that perspective on the table, let's review Thursday's lesson now. <clears throat> First, the Spirit made a point about man's affinity and ability to take things out of context. First off, we never want to try to justify something ungodly by quoting Scripture out of context. People love to do it. I like that verse. I'm going to take it out of context to justify this ungodly thing that I'm premeditating. In Holy Scripture, the ends never justifies the means. The only person able to make that claim is God. The ends never justify the means. The only person able to make that claim is God. God is able to do whatever brings glory to Himself. However, man does not have this right. Man does not have this right. Even though in pretending to be like God, God's creatures have a habit of supposing they do. In fact, under the precept of authority orientation, oh, and by the way, I wrote a blog titled Beautiful Things, and authority orientation was the baseline premise because authority orientation is beautiful. Some of you are like, yeah, I didn't read it yet. I was too busy watching reruns 
of Scooby-Doo. I mean, it's funny, right? But it's horrible. It's grotesque. Our primary goal, listen, under the precept of authority orientation, our primary goal is the means, knowing that God's already planned the ends, regardless of our efforts to ever alter it. So up here on the board is what we got on Thursday. The ends justifies the means. That old saying from the world, never in the Bible is this method considered godly. Never. In fact, the Word of God tells us that it is better to suffer for what is right than to do something wrong. 1 Peter 2.20, 3.17, 4.19. Go to uh, 1 Peter 3.17. 1 Peter 3.17, just as a review. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Do you notice that the emphasis here is on doing? That is the means the Spirit is pointing to this morning. You're not going to know every reason why God the Holy Spirit's going to convict you to do something, but He does. Abraham, go out. I'll tell you when you get there. Okay. But, but, no. Go out. I'll tell you when you get there. But I need to know the end so I can justify the means. So, blah, blah, blah. No. I just want you to follow my orders. I just want you to take my commands. That's what's important. That's what brings glory to me. You don't make the plans. I do. You're a slave. Your job is to do as I ask. Up here on the board. We do God's will by obeying His commands. God is pleased when we are authority-oriented. We leave the rest up to Him. Again, we do God's will by obeying His commands... God is pleased when we are authority-oriented. We leave the rest up to Him. You might say, oh, you know, eh. But it, it seems like my life is so much more difficult to be obedient in. My life is tough. Me, my, I. Me, my, I. What about others? My life is so difficult. All I can tell you is that God called you in that condition. And who you are, or who are you, I should ask, O slave, to question the sovereign God of the universe. Romans 9.20 and the message up here on the board. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Do you for one moment suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question? Clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, why did you shape me like this? Who are you to complain? Just be glad you're not in some third world country with no toilet paper. Oh, that's a fact, my friend. Some of you think that everybody on the planet has toilet paper? Oh, no. Oh, no. There are certain parts of this this world that you have to pack toilet paper if you're going to go visit them. There's so many things that we take for granted. There are parts of this world that don't have electricity or it's shared. Lights out at a certain point. Or maybe no lights at all. You know know what I mean? Okay, the last time a hurricane came around, 
and you lost electricity, were you not a little crying little pansy? <laughs> I can't even flush the toilet. Really? There are people on the other side of the planet that don't have toilets or toilet paper. But your life is so tough. Nobody understands how tough your life is. <laughs> Jesus Christ said, hey, the fox have foxholes, right? But even the son of man doesn't have a place to call his home. <laughs> Just perspective. You know what? His, his, what the Spirit's been teaching us is right here on the board. Life has context. Your life has context. You know what the starting context is? You're a slave to the perfect master. That's your baseline context. Go to 1 Peter 4.19. 1 Peter 4.19. That's your baseline context, my friends. You're a slave. You're like, no, I'm not. I'm independent. Oh, captain, my captain. I am the person who sets the destiny of this vessel. No, you're not. That means you're a slave to unrighteousness. But you're either one or the other, so says Scripture. Read Romans 6 when you go home. You're always a slave, one or the other. That idea of independence from God just means you're a slave to unrighteousness. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God, you know, doing what's right, doing what's right. Emphasis on the means, not the ends. Because that's what he says. He says, you bring glory to me when I tell you what to do and you accomplish the means. Don't you worry about the ends. I've got that all wrapped up even before you were born. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Not what you want, what is what? Right. That is a huge chasm for some people. But I thought God loved me, and because God loves me, He's going to give me what I want. Those two things don't intersect until you actually learn the Word of God, until you actually become obedient, until your heart is changed. And then you realize the things that you want to do and the things that God wants you to do, they stop becoming the same thing. And that's the time when doing right is something that you like. Again, life has context. Concentrate now. We're still developing this lesson. If you agree that life has context, then you must ask yourself, well, what is life? And I'm not waxing philosophical now. It's a very serious question, my friends, up here on the board. What is life? The answer, John 1.4. How about we go check out some scripture? Go to John 1.1. What is life? If life has context, well, what is life? In the scriptural sense, of course, we'll get more practical in a moment, but we need to understand what does the Bible have to say about life itself? What is life? We're trying to find context. Wouldn't that be a good place to start? Yeah, since life has context. 
John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, that's Jesus Christ Himself. Don't believe me? Look at verse 14. But we're not there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now that context, try teaching that in an elementary school. How about that for context? How about verse 3 for context on the topic of life? All things came into being through Him. And, from a, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Well, what about the Big Bang? Yeah, what about the Big Bang? It's a lie. <laughs> uh, but we're talking about life, right? What is life? What's verse 4 say? In Him was life. God is eternal life, so says Scripture. Jesus Christ is God. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. You want to be illumined? You want to learn? You want to, you want to understand what true life is? What light is to stand in the light? Then you have to understand what is life. Life is Him. The answer, as Holy Scripture clearly states, is Jesus Christ Himself. So let's stop and synthesize the past couple of lessons so far. So broaden your thinking. On one hand, we know from Scripture that life has context. We know this. On the other hand, we know from Scripture that Jesus Christ is life. We just read that. So then what can we say about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, what we can say is that the gospel itself has context because the gospel is about a man. The man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel context. So all the Spirit's been trying to say is what he taught us on Thursday up here on the board. The gospel context must be tied to the person of Jesus Christ. Since Jesus Christ is life, John 1.4, and His life has context, Luke 19.10, we'll see that in a moment, therefore, His gospel has context. In other words, if you want to understand the gospel context, you have to understand the context of Jesus Himself. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, right? We read that all this past week. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of the Son of God. It's the same gospel of God. Why? Because the gospel is always about one person. But even demons know all the facts about the person, and yet they're not saved. Hmm. So the gospel context must be tied to the person of Jesus Christ, since Jesus Christ is life and his life is context. Therefore, his gospel has context. Go to Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10. So let's talk about the context of Jesus Christ. What about Him? What about Jesus Christ? And, and make Him a man. Make Him real to you in your hearts, in your soul. Make Him real. Just because you cannot see Him now does not mean He's not sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now. The same guy that was walking the earth 2,000 plus years ago. The same guy. 
Same yesterday, today, forever. Amen? Amen. I beat you to it. Amen. <laughs> Keep up. Luke 19.10. What about this guy? Let's stop trying to learn all the facts about him. What about his context? Who was he? What was he? Why did he, why did he Philippians 2, 7 and 8, why did he humble himself? Why? Here we go. Luke 19.10 doesn't get much simpler than this. For the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. You want to know anything about him? There you go. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Stop. Just stop. Before you go on reeling any further about anything else, I want you to stop and ponder Jesus' own words here. These are not Pastor Ed's words. These are Jesus, Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. These are His words. For the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Up here on the board, Jesus seeks and saves. Jesus' purpose in life, His calling as an obedient servant of His Father in heaven, was and is to seek and to save that which is lost. The good news, you know, the gospel, Evangelion in the Greek, is that He came to do this. His ministry, His words, His actions were dominated by this simple calling. This is the gospel context. It's His gospel, my friends. He showed up and He said, Here I am. I came to seek and to save. So Jesus' purpose in life is calling as an obedient servant of His Father in heaven was and is still to seek and to save that which is lost. The good news, the gospel, is that He came to do this. His ministry, His words, His actions were dominated by this simple calling. This is the gospel context. So then, whenever we read our Bibles, what ought we have at the forefront of our mind always? So we're just going to go and we're just going to open up our Bibles tonight, you know, before bed, and we're going to start reading a few passages. What do you think should be at the forefront of our minds always? The gospel context. What's this all about? What is life? Oh, he's life. It was his gospel. He was the light of men. I guess it behooves us to keep him in view. So whenever we read our Bibles, what ought we have at the forefront of our minds always? We ought to have the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, always at the forefront of our minds. Look at verse 10 again. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now it isn't until we lose sight of Christ's own purpose and the plainly stated good news that He came to seek and to save that Scripture runs the risk of becoming quote-unquote difficult somehow. It's a guarantee, my friends. You lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ, you lose sight of this entire book. You might be able to categorize it because you're an intelligent person. You might be able to do certain little tricks, this, that, and the other. But if you lose sight of Him, you lose sight of the book. You lose sight of everything. The whole thing untethers. That's when things become difficult, when we lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ, the person of the gospel. 
So as you can see at the outset of this new category of lessons titled the difficult passages, the Spirit's got us immediately focused on the gospel context. It's not so fast. Not so fast. We'll get to those other things like repentance and such. And carnality. We'll get to those things. But those things are worthless until you actually have the context of the gospel itself correct. So that I know, so says the Spirit, when you're reading your Bible, I can convict you of the proper things. That you're not going to be confused anymore, if you ever were. That you'll be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. That it won't be difficult, it'll be simple. It'll be beautiful. It'll be a meal that you want to dine on always. Not skip out. Not skip out. The reason should be obvious, folks, why the Spirit has us on the Gospel context immediately into this series, so to speak, this category of lessons. The value of context. Without the Gospel context, the rest of Scripture becomes, quote, difficult to understand, often confusing, and as a result, frustrating. It's one of Satan's favorite strategies. Confuse the Gospel and the rest of the Bible just falls apart. And you know what happens? Satan loves it when a well-intentioned, quote-unquote, believer puts their Bible aside in frustration. I can't read this. I mean, there's like 14 dispensations in that thing. So says the moron behind the pulpit. I can't understand it. You know, it's just, oh man, it's just, I don't know, it's all Greek to me. Uh It's all Greek to me, right? I just can't understand it. That's because you don't have the context. He's doing this massive favor right now. Almost unparalleled, if you're a believer, to say do not lose sight of the gospel context. The value of it is immeasurable. Without the gospel context, the rest of Scripture becomes, quote, difficult to understand, often confusing, and as a result, frustrating. Satan loves it when a, quote, well-intentioned believer puts their Bible aside in frustration. As I intimated on Thursday, here's how all of you ought to be reading your Bibles. The context, if you will. Think about what Jesus came to do. What did He do? came to seek and to what? Save. We're talking about two categories of people, folks. This is the, this is the Bible. There's not three, there's not four, there's not five. Two basic categories of people. Unbelievers and believers. And when you read your Bible with that context, everything becomes really easy. Really easy. Because that's what He came to do. To seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible speaks about two types of people. Unbelievers and believers. The Gospel is always presented in this context because it concerns the salvation of man. Matthew 7, 13-29. The only time Gospel passages become, quote, difficult is when people make further divisions from errant context. Well, I, didn't, I didn't really take the time to read the rest of the Bible. Or I didn't really think about the context or the history of the passage itself. I just like that passage. And it, and, it, and it seems to suit what I want it to suit. I want to, In other words, I want to try to fit Scripture into my preconceptions about God. 
So just think about Jesus' intent. Let's not lose sight of our Lord. Think about Jesus' intent during His earthly ministry. What was He trying to do? What was His reason for becoming a man in the first place? Jesus became a man so that He could be the solution to a single problem. Man needs a Savior. That's why He became a man to be the solution to a single problem. Man needs a Savior. Jesus came to save. Or as the yoke says, it's on the other side, Jesus saves. Jesus' ministry, just context. We're trying to get the context, right? We get the context of the man, we get the context of the gospel, because it's the gospel of the man. Jesus' ministry lasted three years which isn't really a lot of time. I mean, this ministry alone has been in existence seven years and seven months proper. That's like more than twice of Jesus' own public ministry. Think about that, my friends. How quick three years goes by. Jesus' ministry lasted three years, which isn't really a lot of time, given the expanse of His ministry and the number of people He was trying to evangelize. The Bible depicts Him as spending a lot of time teaching crowds of people. Most often, crowds of unconverted Jews and Gentiles even. So ask yourselves, if an audience contains a bunch of unbelievers and you're the Savior, if an audience contains a bunch of unbelievers and you're the Savior, what do you think you're going to be talking about? Given you have stated that the very reason you have even become a man was to seek and to save. What do you think you're going to talk about in a mere three years? Across vast stretches of land. What do you think you're going to talk about? You came to seek and to save. You have three years. Just about everybody you're talking about or two is completely lost. What do you think you're going to talk about? Spiritual maturity? Really? But that makes me able to fit the scripture into my little box. You wonder why so many people are miserable that call themselves Christians. Seriously, why all the misery? Isn't it obvious what Jesus would say to that audience? Wasn't the audience obvious? Doesn't the context of His very life show us what the audience was? Who they were? What was going on? How very lost they were? Isn't it obvious, even before we run off and read an abundance of Scripture? To his Jewish audiences, for example, he spoke of salvation using language that they'd understand, even appealing to their strong sense of God's promises regarding the kingdom. Great. Like Paul says, I become all things to all men so that what? I can what? No, no, no. Scripture says make them spiritually mature.
save. I don't know how to say it, folks. This whole thing, this whole plan of God's, it's about saving people. So Jesus used the language that was appropriate with his own brethren, the Jews. Jesus was Jewish after all. For example, at the very outset of his public ministry, he said to a Jewish audience in Capernaum, go to Matthew 4.17, Matthew 4.17. So he's in Capernaum, he's sort of, that was sort of his home base, if you would, of operations for his ministry. There are a lot of confused Jews at, the point, at this point in that area. Matthew 4.17, this is what he said. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the very worst word, first word he said? <laughs> Repent. And what did he do right after that? He did exactly what he said we all ought to do in the Great Commission. He said, follow my example. Let's read. Save men, in other words. You ready? You want to see what he said? Look at verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum's right on the coast there, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, you know him, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow my lead. I will make you fishers of men. Tell all these Jews they have a problem. They need to repent. They need to believe in my gospel. I'm the Messiah. I came to seek and to what? Save. I want to make you fishers of men. Let me give you a little insight on fishers of men up here on the board. Matthew 4.19. This phrase is consistent with the context of Jesus' own ministry. Fishing implies catching. Maturing may come later as experiential sanctification does, but the goal is to what? Catch. Seek and save. What does a fisherman do after all? Okay, to be stupid, I'm going to go fishing in my bathtub today. No, I don't seek by going fishing in my bathtub. You know why? Because there's no fish there. I seek where there's actually fish. I might go down the reservoir. Of course, I don't have a license, so you might have to bail me out, but you know what I mean. I may have to go down the reservoir. Maybe I catch a perch or something, one of those snaggly-toothed little things that just eat your bait, and you're like, come on, one of the bass. Anyways, I digress. I might go down there, right? Let's, we came to seek and to save. Fishing requires actually going out. Find the ones who are lost. This is what this is all about. Find the ones who are lost. I promise, you catch these men, I, God, will sanctify them. Philippians 1.6. I will do that thing. You focus on save. You focus on getting people saved. You go out and make, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You know, remember the apostles, the two here in view, they weren't educated. They didn't have uh, notebooks, you know, three-ring binders full of doctrines. They said, you're the Messiah? I'm him. I'm following you. What do we do? I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to do the same thing I came to do. I came to seek and to save. I'm going to be gone shortly, 
and I need you to carry out this great commission of mine, same one that I've always had, same one I had before my incarnation even, seek and save, I want you to carry that out. <laughs> to put this into greater context of our lessons up here on the board, continuing Christ's work. The Great Commission is a continuation of Jesus Christ's ministry, which was to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. The Bible equips us to do this by teaching us, often through, script, through examples. Now, this is where I think a lot of people go, they stop bailing out to the left towards uh, intellectualism, towards Gnosticism, towards Pharisaism, towards religion. This is what I think people get lost on. They lose sight of the gospel and they spend all their time carving up scripture when all the scripture was saying, hey, look, Paul went out and this is what he ran into. So he wrote about it. John went out, he went out, this is what he ran into. And so he wrote about it. All they were trying to do is preserve the pristine gospel, you know, to seek and to save the lost. And Satan keeps coming in and saying, oh, no, it's faith by works. It's, it's uh, Jesus Christ wasn't even, he was like spiritual dude, but, you know, the spirit left him on all this crazy stuff. Evil, all evil is, uh, all uh, matter is evil, so says the Gnostics. And he, it was just this infiltration, constant attacks on the one beautiful thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're all attacks on the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's what you're supposed to read when you read the epistles. Not carve them up into ad nauseum. So let's, again, find the context of the Bible. He's giving it to you. We ought to continue Christ's work. The Great Commission is a continuation of Jesus Christ's ministry, which was to seek and to save the lost. The Bible equips us to do this by teaching us, often through examples, what it means to reaffirm and defend the gospel. You know, like Paul, Peter, John, and their epistles. That hard? No, not really, huh? Seems kind of simple. Jesus came, showed us his heart, showed us how to do it, said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to leave now. Here's the great commission. I have all authority to give it to you. Go and baptize the nations and, and teach them all that I've taught you. This Blah, 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 blah. Make disciples. Stop. Some of you might be saying to yourselves at this point, you mean to tell me that what you're saying is that the gospel is not just the beginning of our salvation, it's also our sanctification? I boldly, responsibly, and accurately say a resounding yes. It's not only the cause of our salvation, it's also the cause of our sanctification. What's more beautiful in your life? What's going to bring you more joy in time than giving somebody the gospel? Honestly. Than fulfilling and continuing Christ's ministry on earth. What's more joyful than that? Coming to church and taking more notes? Going on Facebook and arguing ad nauseum about ridiculous doctrines of men? What's going to give you more joy? up here on the board. So your life has context too, doesn't it? Why? Because that's what the Great Commission did. It said, I'm Jesus. I have all authority. You see what I did? I came to save, seek and to save the lost. I want to make you fishers of men. I give you that charter. 
I give you this charter. I'm even going to give you God, the Holy Spirit, to help you along the way. So your life has context, doesn't it? If you're a believer, you have this commission on your life. Our great charter in life is to seek and to save. That is Jesus' legacy. That was his own context, his gospel context. He has handed the mantle over to generations of believers. For some of you, this revelation, if you want to call it that, the simplicity of it, is stupendous. After years of studying the Word of God with the end goal of learning new doctrines even, what you finally figured out is that there's only one basic doctrine, that is the Gospel. <laughs> if you're going to categorize, seriously, I mean this with all my heart, everything I've got. If you're, going to, if you're actually going to take notes and you're, and you're going to actually go through the process of categorizing doctrines in the Bible, at the very top there should be Roman numeral 1, the gospel. And every other doctrine is indented below it. Every other doctrine indented and below the gospel. So that is your life's context, my friends. Our great charter in life is to seek and to save, for that is Jesus' legacy. That was his own context, his gospel context. He has handed this mantle over to generations of believers. So what some of you are finally figuring out, again, is there's only one basic doctrine, the gospel. As I taught you during the series titled The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, this so-called spiritual maturity is a function of how much wisdom you have that enables you to either reaffirm or defend the gospel. Let me repeat that. This so-called spiritual maturity is a function of how much wisdom you have that enables you to either reaffirm or defend the gospel. This godly definition of spiritual maturity may result in you or your being more well-versed in Scripture, of course. However, Spiritual maturity is not strictly a function of knowledge. For even the demons know and believe that Christ is the Son of God. Even the unbelieving Jews made this mistake, something Jesus often corrected. Go to John 5.38. John 5.38. <clears throat> Demons believe, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews believed, but what did they believe though? That's the problem. John 5.38, you do not have his word abiding in you. Now they would have flipped out when they heard that. They said, not only do I have it abiding, I have scripture memorized. These guys were really intelligent people and they had literally the Old Testament, massive portions of it memorized. Hmm. But then along comes the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and He says, you do not have His Word abiding in you. Oh, how dare you! You do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him who He sent. Huh. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. <laughs> this is me. This is my, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Word. We just saw that in John 1.1, right? In the beginning of this Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh, verse 14. He said, this, it's a cockamamie thing. He's like, this is unbelievable. I show up the Messiah of the Bible itself, all the scripture you've got memorized, and you don't see me. <laughs> but Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Get away from me. I never knew you. Oh, oh. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. John 1.4 said, whose life? In him is life. We asked that question at the beginning of class, right? What is life? Well, why don't they have it? Because they never had him up here on the board. What is life? He just said in verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. But we have all the scripture. We have all the doctrines. So? The word's not abiding in you. Verse 38. But we knew scripture. I know. So? Hmm. What is life? The answer on the board. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Eternal life is not in Scripture, it's in Christ. John 5.39 As the Spirit taught us, spiritual maturity is a function of faith. And faith, my friends, Pistis in the Greek is not as some would have you believe just another word for doctrine. That's a lie. Faith is as Holy Scripture states. Go to Hebrews 11. Oh, actually, I've got it up here on the board for you. Scratch that. Faith is as Holy Scripture states. What about this Pistis thing? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. The men of old, who's he talking about? Who do you think he's talking about? The morons, some of them, were never saved because they had stuff memorized, they had this, but they didn't have any faith. God said, I see your heart. I, even, I know why you're memorizing Scripture because you just want to elevate your flesh above you, the others in your community. You just want to become all kinds of religious so that it's all about you again. That stinks of Satan. That stinks of the flesh, does it not? Jesus saw right through it. He said, you don't have the word. You have scripture memorized, but that doesn't mean you actually, Lombano, that means, doesn't mean you possess the word. It means you've got to memorize. Big deal. Satan could, Satan, I guarantee, I'd be willing to bet, I could be wrong, has this entire book in the original languages memorized. He's a super genius. Big deal. Big deal. Going to the lake of fire. Well, it can't be that then. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say about faith? It's given to you by grace, right? By God, from God, lest no one should what? Boast. So unless God gives you saving faith, you're not saved. 
But I knew all the scripture. So? I knew about Jesus Christ. I even said this little prayer. So? He doesn't know some people who think they know him and he does know them. Boy, is this an unpopular message. Oh boy, oh boy, is this an unpopular message. People don't want to think like this. They like, they like the idea of pistis being the doctrines of men. Because all you have to do at that point is what? Get on a treadmill and memorize the doctrines. And all of a sudden, through that perverted system of thinking, somehow you have faith. Maybe even faith that saves. Why? Because, you know, uh, what is it? Jesus Christos? I have to be saved because I'm awesome. That's what the Pharisees thought. And Jesus is like, I came to seek and save the lost. He said, you're lost. You're terribly lost. You read the scriptures. You haven't memorized. You didn't realize it's me. Here I am. And then they killed him. As Paul stated so magnificently regarding this faith from God, go to Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16, the gospel has context. Once Paul got knocked down on the road to Damascus, Jesus showed him that context. And he was utterly convinced that the gospel was the centerpiece of his life. The centerpiece of his life. He said, all the things that I've gained, I count them as what? Rubbish, if I can just get to know Christ. <laughs> That's true wisdom. Not some ridiculous religion made up by man. Not some ridiculous garbage religion. That, but, but mom and dad said I'm saved because I'm a member of the church. Okay, um... You have to find that one for me in the Bible, like right now. Oh, you mean you can't give a defense for the hope that's in you? You might have a problem then. But I believe so and so. But God says you're supposed to give a defense. Ooh. You mean I might be wrong? Yeah, you might be dead wrong. You know, just like the Pharisees who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we? Pro I never knew you. And they had more scripture than most people, at least as the Old Testament. Knowledge is concerned, the oracles. People need to stop buying lies. Parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters, we don't save anyone. God saves. Jesus saves. We don't save anyone. If you don't have a humble, contrite heart, you don't get the faith that saves. Because faith from God is, guess what? You ready for this one? By grace... Chorus is a gift. And God says, nope, yes, nope, yes, nope, 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 Yes. Why so many nopes? The gate is narrow that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few will find it. Damn you, Collins! How dare you say that? Now you're bringing my children into view. My grandparents are in view. My best friend is in view. That's right. 
Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Damn you, Collins. What do you want me to say? You want me to lie to you? You want me to lie about the context of the person of Jesus Christ? You want me to lie to you about the context of the gospel? Would you rather that happen? It's amazing. It's amazing. People. Look at verse 16, Romans 1.16. Paul saw it. The Spirit's just trying to get you to see it. He, didn't, he wasn't teaching some other gospel like some morons teach. Oh, this was the gospel of Paul. Shut up. Je- Jesus Christ taught Paul. Do you think he's going to teach him a different gospel? I, I really, really, I'm just going to I'll give you a different one so you can go out and confuse the hell out of everybody. <laughs> Joke's on them. And maybe they'll end up in a lake of fire because that's what I want. Because I didn't come to seek and to save. I don't want my agents, I don't want to hand the mantle over so that's simple and pure devotion to me. I want to send you off with something confusing. Does that sound like Jesus at all? God's not the God of confusion. The Holy Spirit's God. He said, I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to make sure that he brings into remembrance all that I taught you. He's going to bring into remembrance the things that I said. Lo, I'm with you always. It's the Spirit of Christ. He's not trying to confuse anyone. Paul wasn't confused to him. It was very simple. Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's no distinction. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I just told you. Scripture just revealed. The Holy Spirit just convicted you all that faith is a gift from God. It's not some man-made doctrine. It's not you memorizing Scripture. It's a gift from God. And guess what? John, uh, James 4, 6 says, God gives grace to guess who? The humble. But the Pharisees had all this doctrine and they were really smart. I don't know. And he never gave them that saving faith. Why? Because they weren't humble. DJ and I were talking about that before class. (laughs) How do you evangelize someone? What does the Bible say? What did Jesus say at the outset of his ministry? Repent! God loves a contrite heart. So how do you evangelize somebody? The very first question to get them thinking about is really the only question that... I hate to say it, don't, don't quote me and get all tangled in doctrines. The only question that really matters... Do you need a Savior? Do you believe that you need a Savior? Because if you don't, God's not going to give you saving faith. You have to believe that you need a Savior. You're not going to believe all these facts about Jesus Christ. That might come after. It will. But God sees the heart and He says, the only person I'm going to give saving faith to is the humble one. Is the one who says in their heart, I need a Savior. I am a wretch. I need a Savior. If that conversation never happens, 
they might have a problem. That's all Jesus ever talked about, my friends. He even the, the parable of the soils, he just kept saying, some people are going to come really close, but then they're going to choose their self-life because they never gave up on it. The man that, the man that uh, precipitated, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to come to Christ. What was his problem? Jesus said, yeah, you, 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 know, you kept the law, but why don't you get rid of the self-life, all those things that you're attached to, and then you can follow me. Oh, no, no. I want easy believism. Throw me a coin. How do I hedge my bets? Mommy and Daddy told me if I just believe in Jesus Christ, I'm going to heaven. This is the other one I've been working out in my own soul. When's the right time? Do we have the right to tell a five-year-old they're saved? Do we have the right to tell anybody they're saved? And then I ask myself, how much, how humble, how convicted is a really small child of the fact that they're a wretch? If that's like the preeminent first step, I need a savior. Not because mommy and daddy or prep school teacher said, oh, Jesus Christ loves you. If you believe in him, you go to heaven. Sounds like a great ticket to me. You mean all I have to do is show up with my hand out and I get a candy? Sounds like a trick. So you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. Some of these people say, I was saved when I was four or five. I have to say to myself, in all integrity to scripture, is that possible? Is that actually possible for God to decide? But how much does a young four-year-old contemplate their own wretchedness? How can they? Prep school teachers are like, oh, crap. <laughs> Got to redo the lessons again. I'm being very serious, my friends. The last thing we want to do is lie to any individual and tell them they're saved when we shouldn't or imply that if they say these things, even though they can't even comprehend what the heck was Jesus saying when he said repent? They don't understand repent. They understand if I say this, I get a candy? Yeah. How can they possibly understand repent? That's between you and the Lord to think about. Verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Up here in the board. From faith to faith. The beginning and the end is faith. Please see this. This is, what, this is what made Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer, literally blow apart at the seams. It was like an epiphany for him. The whole Protestant Reformation. This guy looked at this verse and said, Oh my God! This is incredible. From faith to faith, you mean the whole thing? The beginning and the end is faith. Where do you get faith, though? From God. Now you start understanding grace. Now you understand it's not about you working for salvation. It's not about you doing any work. So says Scripture. Read Ephesians 2.8.9. It's not about you doing anything for God. God says, I see the heart. To the humble, I give grace. First step, faith. Faith in my son. He says, if I see a humble heart that says, I need a Savior. 
I will give them the gospel. And I will even give them saving faith. Why? Because what I saw in their heart. Not because they showed up to some church or they signed some little, you know, five by three card that said, I want to be a member of this church. (laughs) He said, I'll give faith to the humble heart. That's the context of the gospel. This is the power of from faith to faith. It's the beginning and the end is faith. We live by faith in the person of the gospel. That is our life's context. That is our salvation and our sanctification. Honest to goodness, what did verse 16 said? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not even ashamed that it's easy. Matter of fact, I want you to believe it's easy. I really do. But easy things are shameful. That's for like the stupid people. Who says that? Intellectual, arrogant people. I want, to, I, want, I want knowledge that puffs up. I want this whole thing to be about knowledge. Oh, you want to be a Gnostic just today in 2016. Never knew you, says Christ. That's what you believe. From faith to faith, the beginning and the end is faith. We live by faith in the person of the gospel That is our life's context. That is our salvation and our sanctification. To our previous point up here on the board, our great charter in life is to seek and to save, for that is Jesus' legacy. That was his own context, his gospel context. He has handed the mantle over to generations of believers. Look at what Jesus said. Go to Mark 1.15. Mark 1.15. This is what he's handed over to us. And he didn't make, you know, <laughs> he wasn't afraid of offending anyone. That's what I love about Jesus. He's like, you didn't take offense to me. I, don't, you know, I, don't, I mean, I care because I love you. I don't want anybody to miss out on eternal life, but it's your choice. And so I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to, you know, if this is, the, this is the line of, you know, saving faith, I'm not going to try to meet you halfway. I'm not going to skip out on this idea that you have to repent. You have to get really low. God has to see your heart and then give you saving faith. I'm not going to skip out on that. That would be robbing you. That would be a lie. Mark 1.15, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. As we learned this past week, there's only one gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Stop. Consider the simplicity of the situation that beset Jesus at the outset of his ministry. Just three years, not much. A lot of, lot of space to cover, a lot of people to talk to. What was the situation? He said, I came to seek and save the lost. First thing he said, repent and believe in the gospel. That's all he's going, repent. Repent, believe the gospel, repent, understand that you are a sinner. So consider the simplicity of the situation that beset Jesus at the outset of his ministry. The history is that the Jews who had been given the oracles of God, that's Romans 3, 2, had fallen away from truth. So much so that many believed in salvation by works. 
There are huge denominations in our area that teach it's salvation by works. It's not just Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, oh, and you have to be a good person, and then God will go, hmm, maybe at the end of this, I'll save you because, you know, you are kind of better than your, you know, the neighbor. You know, then you become like the Pharisee who said, thank God I'm not like that guy. That guy was going, tearing his chest, saying, save me, I'm a sinner. Which one got saved that day? This one. Not the pompous ass. Not the one who said it's faith plus works. Not some person who thinks they can impress God. Are you kidding me? The only things impressive to God are the gifts we get from Him. Nothing we can do on our own. So the history in context of that verse is that the Jews who had been given the oracles of God had fallen away from the truth, so much so that they believed in salvation by works. Jesus had to teach salvation by grace. In other words, that salvation was never through the law, like they were teaching, but rather through Him. Through Him, through the person. Given the momentum of the Jewish leaders at the time, and the fact that Jesus was Jewish Himself, His Father in Heaven, wanted him to thrust himself into the history and the audience of the Jews. Just consider the concept. The Jews were a mess. It's salvation by works. God says, I'm sending my son down. He's going to become a man. And he's going to thrust himself in the middle of this pigsty. (laughs) So that's what the father did. That's the context. You get it? So this place is a mess. So hence his opening words in his public ministry. They are the, the hallmark of his ministry itself. The very hallmark of his ministry was recorded in the Bible. Look at verse 15 again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Up here on the board. Jesus' life context The context of Jesus' life, and therefore the gospel context, was dictated by the history and the audience of the Jews. The Jews had gone astray and needed to repent from salvation by works to salvation by grace through Christ. This conflict dominated his ministry. It dominated, so he used that language. What do you think you're going to do if you're the Savior that came to seek and save the lost? What do you think you're going to do? You're going to try to relate to that person. You're all messed up. You're all tangled. You got all screwed up. I love you. That was the context of Jesus' life. And if you've ever been in a situation where your opposition is steeped in some kind of false system of belief, you know what Jesus was going through. It's the same thing that his disciples went through as they carried on their own efforts to fish from men. Which is to say that the world is always at odds with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's part of the gospel, of the, the context of the gospel. That the world is at odds with Jesus Christ. The world hates Christ. Didn't Jesus say that? The world hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The world hates you because you believe in me. Didn't Jesus say stuff like that? (laughs) That's our context. The world has always rejected grace in favor of works. The context of our lives even today 
2,000 plus years later, demands that we carry on with Jesus' work in the same manner in which he showed us up here on the board. We must evangelize the same way that Jesus did. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Count the cost. Give this thing a serious look. Are you a sinner? Do you need a Savior? Do you? If you've never thought that, then you never got the faith that saves. If you don't think you need a Savior, what do you think you're believing in? Well, says, I was told that if I believe in Jesus Christ, that I get a free ticket to heaven. Yay! But Jesus said, no, wait a minute, whoa, wait a minute. Give up the self-life first, then you can follow me. Oh, man, people don't like those passages, do they? Oh, no, 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 not my little Jimmy. He got saved when he was four. Really? And who are you to say that? What about little Jimmy? Little Jimmy's still sucking his thumb. What about little Jimmy? Think little Jimmy knows what the heck repentance even is? Think little Jimmy understands the need for a savior? Some of you people need to smarten up. Get real. Stop pretending. Everybody's got these blinders on. It's big pretend. As long as I believe it, I'm good. I can go home and sleep at night because I don't like the fact that little Jimmy might be totally lost. I might have been the one that told him that he was saved. And now he thinks he's saved and he's not saved. What do you think Jesus Christ was saying all this time? You guys think you're saved, but you're not. I'm serious. You think the Pharisees didn't think they were going to heaven? Are you kidding me? He's shaking them. Are you kidding me? The scriptures talk about me. But nobody likes that message, especially not today, with easy believism as our gospel. You know, the gospel that has some other Jesus that didn't teach that stuff, given from another spirit that doesn't teach that stuff, and so they end up with a little G gospel. It's so accommodating. Yay, little Jimmy going to heaven. Jimmy going to heaven. What are we doing, man? Seriously, what are we doing? So Jesus Christ hands over the mantle. And what do we do? Well, I don't like that part of it. I don't like that part. I kind of like this part, though. You know, the free handout? I kind of like that one. So I'll keep that. I'll lie to everybody in my midst. I'll tell them all you have to do is believe these facts about Jesus Christ. You get to go to heaven. I'll lie my socks off. Because that's what I like. I don't want to be offensive. Jesus Christ, so says Scripture, was the stumbling block. Why can't you be? Not a stumbling block for righteousness, a stumbling block to the unrighteous. Why can't you be a stumbling block to the unrighteous people in your life? Why do you got to accommodate everybody? Seriously, Jesus didn't. And he said, here's my mantle. Take it. You saw how I taught. You saw how I was, was uncompromising regarding my gospel, my integrity. I'm the word of God. I'm the Messiah. You saw how I taught these people. I love them. But I didn't pretend. I told them, you need a savior. You need to repent. You need to get back to the truth. 
We must evangelize in context, my friends. We mustn't ever take biblical passages out of context in order to relieve the pressure of spreading the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We know there's another gospel. We know there's another Jesus. And we know there's a lot of spirits that teach both of those things. We know they exist. How do I know? Scripture says they exist. We know in end times, people are going to fall away for what? The doctrines of demons. The doctrines of demons say, oh, no, 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 Jesus' words don't apply. That was, hey, listen, it's 2016. We've got to, you know, we've got to change our ways, you know. Mm-mm-mm, rock band. Come up here. Come up to the stage. Ready? We're going to jam out. Mm-mm, Brian's on the bass. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Right? The kids are flipping out. Oh, oh, you know, it's like this almost like trance-like state. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Yay, yay. That's what most Christian churches are like nowadays, at least the big ones. Kids flood those places. Why do they flood those places? Why do you think? It's easy. They don't have to give up their self-life. To them, it's just another hedged bet. And sadly, so sadly, idiots that should not even be called, in many ways, Christians, call themselves pastors. They're not shepherds. These are the people that are climbing over the side. These aren't shepherds. This is a shepherd. Do you see it? This is a shepherd. That garbage out there is bull. And you got people, you got young kids, come on, people. Young children lied to from when they were little kids. Told, you're okay, Jimmy. You're all set. You're going to heaven. And by the way, keep God happy along the way, lest you lose your salvation. Man, come on, people. We're supposed to take this mantle. We're not supposed to shrink away to our own destruction. We're supposed to take this mantle and go out with the Great Commission. Carry on Jesus' work, which was what? To seek and what? To save. It's that simple. I'll end with this before my vocal cords come out of my mouth. The result of taking biblical things out of context is a fall from holiness. The gospel has context. If we're going to be set apart for God's good work, if you take any of this, if anything's pure, if anything's good, right? Dwell on these things. Dwell on this. The gospel has context. We know Jesus Christ was a person. We know what he said. We know he didn't hold back. We know he didn't compromise. I mean, you look up uncompromising, you see Jesus and Paul in the dictionary. Neither one of them were uncompromising. They wouldn't. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed that I'm a stumbling block to unrighteousness. I want to be a stumbling block to unrighteousness. Don't you? Don't you want to be a stumbling block to unrighteousness? Seriously. Oh, no, I'd rather party. I'd rather skip church and go to a party. I'd rather skip out on evangelizing and go to some party with ungodliness, with unrighteousness. That's what I prefer. Yeah, that's what I prefer. Shame on you. That's not bringing glory to God at all. The gospel has 
context. Let's find it. Let's embrace it. Let's stop skirting it. Let's stop pretending. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for another time to rejoice and be washed by the Word, refreshed in a way that only your Word can refresh us. Father, thank you for always being faithful to your promises, even as a father whose good work is to discipline his children from time to time. We are so very grateful because you are so very faithful. It's true, Father, our faith wavers, but may you continue to bless us with the confidence that you will correct us and get us back on course. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain humble as we head on back out to the world system, out from this magnificent place of refuge. We pray that we are not overcome with sadness and that we never grow weary of doing good. For this is pleasing in your eyes, so says your word. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.